United have won their last four Premier League games, but this weekend's encounter is likely to be the most difficult of all. On this week's Devils in the Details, we preview the upcoming weekend fixture, including the 11 you're likely to see, how the match is likely to play out tactically, and whether we believe Ten Hag has a shot at winning his very first Manchester Derby. Case, excited for the weekend's match? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've gone a month without uh, United in a league, which is a really odd thing to, to have happen. Um, I mean, I, I guess we were all anticipating it with the World Cup, but to have it happen twice, because gonna, we're going to have to do this again in uh, November, December, is a weird thing. But yeah, definitely excited. What about you? Somewhat excited. I have fears that it's going to go badly. Um, but for the most part, looking forward to seeing United back in action, I feel like looking forward to watching United on the weekend brings order to the chaos of everything. Um, even though United themselves are a chaotic entity, I feel like we should just get straight into it and talk about why I'm worried about Manchester City. So we had a question, uh, in our Q and A last week that was pretty simple, but in my opinion, pretty good from Simon Hunter. He said, how do we beat City? United's last win against City came in March 2021. Uh, that was in a run of four unbeaten league games against City during Solskjaer's full-time tenure. And ended with, obviously, the last game where United lost 2-0 to City last season. Those four wins have a lot of commonalities, most notably some great rest defense. We've talked about that a lot. Uh, but I also think there was a bit of luck associated with enabling United to play in that style especially in the most recent win, which saw Fernandez score a penalty in the second minute that Martial won. How much do you think maybe we have, I don't want to say as a fan base, I don't want to speak for the fan base, but how much do you think maybe perceptions of United's ability to beat City are positively skewed by events that just kind of happen to go in our favor? Significantly. I don't want to completely downplay the performances that were put in the, in, in those matches because I think some of them were really good. But yeah, Game state is massively influential in how any match goes. And I think it's particularly true with these top sides where um, they have the quality, uh, even if they aren't tactically or from a, you know, a, a, a morale or a mental standpoint up to snuff with City or even from a quality standpoint, but they have a certain amount of quality that if something goes your way, you can finish them off. And United have been that. Yeah, I, th I think we probably aren't as scared as we should be as a fan base of City. And, and there's reason for that, obviously. But City have beaten everyone up for five years, except for us. And they beat us up last season, too. I guess that doesn't really count, because we were not us. Yeah, like, they did. But I think on the, on the whole, you can say Pep Guardiola's Manchester City has not manhandled Man United the way you'd expect them to have manhandled them. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's a difficult one. United are definitely, we know this, favorable to playing in these counterattacking situations. Uh, great attacking players on the counter. Good defenders who can execute long periods of rest defense when they have organized team shapes in front of them. And these games have been a lot of that. Like huge performances from the center backs. Uh, a lot of 
attacking ingenuity from players like Fernandez, Rashford, Martial. Um, I think even Dan James and Lingard were heavily involved at certain points in these. We know how City have played for a long time, but this year, I feel like there are some changes in their style of play. And and most notably the fact that Holland is playing up front for them now. They really play around a focal point striker and try to facilitate creating high quality shots for that striker. How in particular, uh, from what you've seen, do you think City have changed their style to fit him into the side? Yeah, to a certain extent, I think they have. I think you see a lot less heavy overloading on the wings. I think because Holland is this box presence, this elite box presence, you see a lot less rotation into the box from uh, sort of the wide players and the eights uh, because it's not as necessary. So obviously other players provide box threat as well. And Holland honestly has acquitted himself really well as a ball carrier too for City this season. I think that's sort of gone under the radar. And it was true at Dortmund as well. He's just a, a monster of a man. And so he has a technicality where if he gets rolling, it's kind of hard to take the ball off of him. But yeah, so so a, sort of a, a greater directness that's been caused by, you know, Holland not being as suited to creating those overloads, but being far more suited to just running through and around and pass uh, opposition center backs. They haven't quite played massive Premier League opposition just yet. They beat Sevilla and Dortmund in the Champions League. Uh, but in the Premier League, it's mostly been sort of mid or lower table opposition so far. And Holland has completely dominated them and they've generated ridiculous numbers. Like I just, on understat, they're at 12, over 12 non-penalty expected goal difference from their first seven matches. Um, and that is clear of everyone else in the Premier League by like a sizable margin. It's hard to say perhaps whether they're better than last season, but clearly it's working at least to some extent. Um, so I guess my next question is, do you think they are better than last season and past seasons? And do you think that's the difference maker in perhaps we've seen these city games where they struggle to break down defenses and finish games off and, it usually ends up costing them in Europe more than in the Premier League, but we see them in the Premier League too. Uh, do you think maybe the days of that are, I don't know, winding down? Do you think they're going to be even more likely to just blitz any team that they come up against? Yeah, I think as as long as Holland is healthy, City are going to be way harder to put away um, because I think you could argue they have the two best transition players in the world in Kevin De Bruyne and Holland. These are two dominant players in a phase of the game that I think most people don't associate with Pep Guardiola's sides. Um, and I think that'll make them... I think it probably gives them the best chance to win the Champions League that they've had ever uh, as as a club, as opposed to under Guardiola. As a club, I think this is probably their best chance to do that. And the qualities that make them more of a threat now in the Champions League than they have been in previous seasons, I think also make them more threatening to us. And, and yeah, that, to, to, be, to be honest with you, that starts and ends with Erling Holland, both his skill set and how he's changed how the side plays. I totally agree. And I think one thing we're maybe yet to see is the fact that they can still go with the approach that they had last season to a large extent. Yep, like they can still totally go with the Foden up front thing and, and play that way. Um, it, it does sort of suck for them that they lost Sterling and Jesus, who I think provided that sort of 
strikery. I mean, Jesus is still a striker, but less strikery off ball threat than Holland. But they're so well coached and their movements are so fluid that they kind of get it from other players, anyways. Even more ball dominant players like players like Foden, Bernardo Silva, even sometimes Grealish and Mares. You see them making runs that they wouldn't make in other teams, but because of the coaching of movement in City's side, they just make them almost subconsciously and naturally. All right, so there's pretty much no way to stop Holland, I guess. But if you were to take a swipe at how United might try to stop the threat of Erling Holland, they've got two center backs that are currently in great form, Lissandro Martinez and Rafa Varane. I feel like if any center back partnership in the Premier League right now were to have a shot of stopping Holland, um, it would be them. So do you have hope in that sense that maybe Verana Martinez are are likely to have a say on this match? Or do you think it's kind of doomed that Holland's likely to get off high quality shots and you just have to hope they don't go in? Uh, no, yeah, I, I think the two of them have a have a good chance or as good a chance of any center back partnership as dealing of dealing with him. I think it's still more than likely, more likely than not, that he gets off really high quality shots and probably scores them. An interesting thing about Lisandro, sort of his history of, of coming up against Holland, I think this is the kind of center back that people expect to give Lisandro lots of problems. The thing is, Holland's threat isn't primarily aerial, and the way he does like to get at opposition players, I think actually, I, w- I won't say it, it, it suits uh, a center back of Lisandro's profile, but I think Lisandro has his ability as a smaller center back to sort of use his agility and get around players as opposed to having to go through them isn't a disadvantage um, in the context of a player who is this big and is impossible to go through. And so if you go back and watch those CL matches last season, I think there was actually only one. So I think Holland was hurt for the second one. But Lisandro was able to sort of nick the ball off of Holland's feet in the box or, and, and just make him a little, I won't say uncomfortable because he wasn't physically imposing himself on Holland, but rather disrupt him in a way that made made it so that I think he only got off one good shot in that match. And if Holland only gets off one good shot in this match, I think you have to give one of the center backs man of the match because I, I don't know how you manage that. Yeah, his numbers are ridiculous. I don't know. I'm not that hopeful that United will be able to stop him, but... I don't, I don't know what will happen in the match, but he's going to score. Like, I, I, he's inevitable. <laughs> Well, that seems like a problem. (laughs) Okay, a couple more thoughts on Manchester City. I feel like because of the context of those wins under Solskjaer, a lot of people kind of assume same old City. But there was definitely a change in approach between the season when Liverpool won the title and the season when City won it back. The one where the 2-0 win that we spoke about happened uh, with the early penalty. And it felt like, perhaps a response to COVID ball, but also perhaps a response to City giving away a lot of games in transition, where they sort of shifted their approach from trying to frantically dominate the opposition as much as possible to having this sort of transition-resisting, all-encompassing, controlling approach where maybe the net margins they create are not as large, but the opposition has such a low quantity of anything in the match that the variability of outcomes for them is much lower. That's part of why I believe maybe the performances in the first season were more 
were more replicable than the performances in the second season. I think the first season is just funny because I think a lot of people would watch those second season performances and feel the opposite. Interesting. I'm not sure. I think the early goal really shapes the game because I I, and you saw this in the reverse fixture where it was a nil nil United created next to nothing. And City went, okay, well, we're going to try and create against you the whole match. But what we're not going to do is let you get in behind easily uh, on in, in transition. And that the match played out pretty dry almost throughout. I don't know. It, it feels like while in previous years to that, or in the year prior to that, more specifically, City kind of resembled a very good version of the other big six teams. Uh, like what we saw against Arsenal, where they were really good in possession against United. But once they lost the ball, United actually had a lot of ability to get at them and, and get behind them, um, especially especially later in the match against tired legs. Um, but I think maybe United are less likely to have that kind of opportunity against the new and improved post-pandemic Man City uh, than they were against the older City, compounded with the threat of Holland. Do you kind of agree with that or or not? Yeah, I think I think basically what Holland represents, in, I, I totally agree with you that City compromised and, and decided that we're going to create a little bit less, but we're going to be more defensively, we're, we're going to concede fewer high quality chances um, and, and sort of be more suffocating. City have been better defensively since then. I think Holland sort of balances the scales on the other end and allows them to be the best version of themselves where they get to be better defensively and still have that insane cutting edge where they're score like where you feel like they could score four goals and a half in any half. Like you saw that against Newcastle. Newcastle were blitzing them in the first half, genuinely outplaying City, but City had just this ability to create an insane volume of chances and then Holland also takes them at a ridiculous clip. This sort of goes back to that question, is this the best City side we've seen? It, they do have the best of both worlds. They have that that reliable defense, and and now maybe a, an attack to rival the Centurion attack. That's terrifying, and and they are unbeaten through seven games, and they don't show signs of losing. I mean, hopefully that changes this weekend, but they don't show signs of really losing. And yeah, I think while a lot of people credit Holland for being sort of the change, and to some extent he is for sure. I think there's also a lot of tactical change at play that we haven't really seen from a United perspective because in the first match where or in the first two matches where it occurred United won one and drew one and in the second two matches where it was the fact United were not good at all and because they were incapable of playing as a side you didn't really get to fully sort of take in the strengths that City have developed over the last few years. So I just thought that was an interesting point to bring up for anyone who's listening who maybe isn't closely watching City and thinks that they're the same side that was blitzing teams through 2016 to 2018. I think they're pretty different now. Yeah, I totally agree. It's sort of been a tactical evolution where I think maybe you could even argue they deliberately took steps back in some areas. Pep curbed I think some of his natural instincts that he'd maybe developed more at Bayern than he did at Barcelona because his his Barcelona side was a little different Bayern he sort of took on his own identity to a greater extent and I think you've seen sort of a a more aggressive adaptation to really this insane tactical environment that is the modern Premier League like we've never seen 
such a high level of technicality, a high level of sort of tactical coaching. Almost every club employs a tactical manager, a, a tactically oriented manager, not somebody who sort of focuses primarily on player relationships and, and player management and vibe. And I don't mean that dismissively because a lot of those managers have been very successful, but you just don't see it anymore in the Premier League, which I think makes the league more intense and it has sort of caused Pep to go through this evolution. Well, it's it's money-driven and it's also oh, sort of yeah. competition-driven where now teams have the money to be able to recruit a level of players who can... I mean, basically every team in the Premier League has players who could play in the Champions League, in my opinion. I agree. And yeah, it, it becomes a game of aggregates in, in massive sums, right? Who is able to create the biggest positive, I guess, generation of outcomes over a 38-game sample? And yeah, City have become, in my opinion, probably the best domestic team of all time. Like, they can beat anyone with their attacking quality and also restrict them to nothing um, with their defensive transitions and the way they play the game. And and it almost seems like a little bit overzealous because they do still concede chances. And the Premier League is of such high quality that every week it feels like, you know, the other team has one or two chances to score. But the fact that it's one or two and you feel like they're grasping is just a testament to how solid this team has become. And how difficult I think this game is going to be. Yeah, I think if you've watched City this season, you maybe feel like we're overselling them because they have had moments where they looked unstable, like that first half against Newcastle. Uh, There were a couple of other matches. You could argue they got played even by Dortmund. The point remains, I think a lot of people, I think especially United fans, don't like to hear this is the best domestic side of all time. But I think if you look at the body of work and actually how much this side has changed, it's true. Yeah, I'll also caveat that by saying that I believe that football gets better over time, like as a whole. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I'm not saying that City's better now relative to everyone else than, you know, Arsenal 2003, was it? Or United 1999 in terms of the gap between them and everyone else. I'm simply saying that absolute quality, like... I mean, I, I will say that. Oh, they, they might be. They might be. That's a different discussion. My point is just that this is like the... If if now is the most evolved point in football, tactical... Yeah, they're the most dominant thing we've seen in the most challenging environment we've seen. All right, with that, I think that's enough on City. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk starting 11, uh, who United can play to give them the best chance of surviving this match or winning this match, maybe a little bit about City starting 11 and whether they are going to change things up. And then finally, we'll end up with some Q&A that continues off from last week. And we're back. We've talked enough about Manchester City, so let's talk about the superior Manchester side. Case, let's talk about United starting 11 for the upcoming derby. Let's start with the back four, or the back five, we'll include De Gea. Do you see any changes here, or is it going to be De Gea, Dalo, Varane, Martinez, Malasia? I think no changes here. Nothing during the international break. No injuries, no focus on changes in form. 
Malasia came on actually playing left center back in a, in a back three for the national, for the Dutch national team uh, yesterday against Belgium, uh, which is interesting. Fun fact. He can do that. He looked really good. Suited him for a couple of reasons. I, I expect the same back five. LVG forever the back three experimenter. Um, let's talk about the front three before the midfield, because I think the midfield will be the most interesting. I suspect it's going to be the two expensive wingers and Rashford, because Rashford dominates in these games. But I also have a feeling Martial might be available again. And I think he actually won man of the match when United won that City game a year ago. How do you think maybe this plays out from an attacking perspective? Do you think it's similar to the Liverpool game where Martial comes on in the second half and sort of tries to add more ball retention and perhaps security in attacking situations? Or do you think maybe Martial could play from the off and someone like Anthony or Sancho gets benched? Because I'm pretty sure Rashford's going to play. Yeah, I think there's basically two ways this could go. Exactly the way you've laid out, where it's the two expensive wingers and then Rashford at center forward. And then Martial comes on late, maybe halftime or later, to sort of, you know, add hold-up play, allow us to control the game a bit better. I think that's the most likely outcome. Uh, Assuming Martial is available, if he's not, then it'll be the same thing with Cristiano and it'll work a lot worse. Or uh, it could be Rashford at left wing, Martial at center forward, and then Anthony or Sancho at right wing, but almost certainly Anthony. Yeah, so um, I think those are the two ways it could play out. It's basically up to whether it's going to be an attempt to control the game from the outset or, you know, play on the break from the outset and then try to relieve pressure later on. Yeah, the Ronaldo point is really interesting because I feel like Ronaldo has been the placeholder for Martial in this setup where it's Sancho, Antony, Rashford, and then you have the switch for the better ball retention later on, preferably when you're leading the match. Elanga is also an additional option on the bench, which is nice when you need more energy or perhaps if you're chasing a goal, you go with Elanga instead of Martial. I'm not sure. We haven't been in that situation yet, but it's kind of, I don't think the perfect options are there. Quite clearly, especially the striker is not ideal, but it's nice to see that there are actual options like, and it's not just three attackers who have to play every game and we hope that they just continue to produce and perform. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the, the, the last time we had actual options, and honestly, we don't, we don't have options to the same extent like we did then, but the last time we had attacking options, like a true variety, was uh, Solskjaer's first season, his first half season, when he took over for Mourinho. You know, there was Rashford and Martial and Lukaku all capable of playing at center forward. And Alexis Sanchez. And Alexis Sanchez. Um, who you know offered something at right wing. Mata could play at right wing. Lingard could play a sort of a false right winger. Um, and then Rashford, that's probably the last time Rashford played a run at center forward until now. Yes, it is. I think that's good for attacking options. Finally, midfield. We've been going with McTominay, Erickson, and Bruno. Now, I feel like it's likely we see that midfield again for continuity's sake, but I'm not sure that that's what I would go with in this match. Let's start with maybe the McTominay thing. Last week in Q&A, we had a question from Kauthan. Is McTominay playing on merit or is Casemiro just not ready? And I think my personal answer is I think Casemiro is just not ready. Uh, We saw in the Europa League match, he kind of struggled for fitness a lot. I don't want to drag out the McTominay discussion too much because I think we've talked about it a lot. I don't think either of our stances have changed. I think the internet United sphere has talked about it a lot. Um, 
The one change that I'll bring up is that McTominay is now playing in a role where his greatest weaknesses are not a part of the role as much as they were before. Uh, he doesn't have to have as much build-up responsibility being paired with Erickson. He doesn't have to have as much um, defensive transitional involvement because of just better overall team shape. And because of that, his role is simplified to something where his athleticism is helpful and his ability on the ball is not harmful. And I don't think that makes him a better player than he was three weeks ago, but I do think that makes him more viable if he needs to play minutes. On the other hand, I think Casemiro at his best is a huge defensive strength. He's better in possession. Um, I think he adds more defensive intensity because he knows how to apply himself positionally and physically. And I think his sort of pedigree as a player who can uh, be the defensive presence for two more attacking, more possessing midfielders is going to scale well to this side in the longer term. Whether this weekend is the match to put him in, I'm not so sure. Yeah, so is Casemiro not ready? I think probably that's how it's, it's being viewed by the coaching staff. A lot of people feel that McTominay is playing very well. I think he's playing as well as he can, but I think he's still really limiting this team. You and I have spoken about this earlier on in the season. We've won matches that in other cases we would have drawn or, or maybe even potentially lost, and that, that that's going to happen later on in the season if we keep playing the way we're playing. And a really big part of that, I still believe, is McTominay. I, I, I just think he lacks technical security in a lot of ways and also lacks positional discipline. So yeah, I think he's clearly, this is definitely not the stretch of games where you're yelling at your TV the same way you might otherwise have been. But I think, honestly, it's foolish to argue that if you get Casemiro up to speed, he's not going to offer more in every 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 phase than McTominay does. He's even a better a box-crashing player. Um, under Zidane, he sort of played as like this second striker for, for uh, in-possession phases at Real and was pretty prolific. He's a really strong aerial threat. I don't think you can genuinely argue... McTominay's there on on some quality advantage he has over Casemiro. I pretty much agree. I don't find the topic of conversation interesting. I don't think McTominay's changed that much as a player in the last, I don't know, three years. I think it's good that he's playing in a role that sort of maximizes his utility. I think that's what good coaches do. His application has been good. Like, I don't have any issue with him. I just don't find... Uh, the constant rehashing of debates about his ability interesting anymore. I, th- I just think he is what he is, and um, he's going to play a squad role as long as he is the best or second best player at what he does in the squad. And right now, I'd say he's probably the second best player in the squad to play this role. I mean, you could you can make a case for Fred, who we'll talk about in a minute. It obviously has to do with physicality. Fred probably has an equal engine to McTominay, but he's half the size of him and easier to turn. I think we also can't discount the chance that Fred is viewed as an advanced midfielder. I, I think we sort of saw that sort of saw that demonstrated in the Real Sociedad match where he played as a 10. Um, and I think that's a correct talent idea. I don't think he's a 10 in the playmaker sense, but I think he's an advanced midfielder. Um, I think in an ideal world, you have players who can play deeper in, in his place and you sort of give him more uh, out of possession freedom, higher up the pitch. But yeah, as for McTominay, just for a moment, 
we've made a big deal out of how good the center backs have been and how good the back line has been. The reality is they haven't been as flawless as I think our goal scoring record would make you think. That said, I do genuinely think they've performed relatively well. I think that same halo effect of the goal scoring record has reflected well on McTominay. And we will come to see, as the season bears on and we play more matches, who is truly playing well and who is benefiting from that halo effect. And I'm I'm not going to sit here and tell you it's definitely McTominay, but there are players in this team who are making mistakes that are going unpunished. Malasia is one of them, a player I love. Yeah, and and the, the proof will be in the pudding. All right. Uh, you said a lot of interesting things there, actually. I think I do want to go back to the midfielder point because I think for many people, it's kind of unintuitive. First with Erickson moving deeper and then with Fred moving more advanced. I think to people, it's more a little bit unintuitive that the players who play deeper can often be an attacking catalyst and the players who play further forward can often be a defensive catalyst. And I think that shapes perceptions of Fred where people begin to think he's just this like really bad deep midfielder when that's not what he is. He's an advanced midfielder whose main benefits occur out of possession. I think the sooner people realize that, we could probably do a whole episode on how Fred's characteristics are suited to playing these sort of advanced roles in heavy pressing sides. For now, I'll just say Fred is not a flawless player, clearly, but within certain setups, he's very useful, and it has more to do with the things that are less noticeable than you would expect for a number eight that's playing further forward or a number 10 as for the halo effect and the defensive mistakes going unpunished yes i kind of agree and i also think it's a little bit of an effect of like the fact that united are better than they were before i think often when you have someone who's really bad or or something that's going really badly and then you have something that's okay the okay thing looks really good like obviously when bruno fernandez first joined united he was excellent but he also replaced Andreas Pereira who fundamentally could not perform in that role and that really inflated early perceptions of Fernandez where it just looked like the entire team had just been like completely reinvigorated because you just made a huge change to the main hub position I think this is true about Ericsson too by the way I think people are amazed by Ericsson and and he's been great but really he's providing like a couple great moments a match as opposed to putting in like full 90s of 10 out of 10 performances but I think we're just all so surprised like so especially if most of the football you watch is Man United which I think is true for most Man United fans it's true for most football supporters it's easy to not realize what your team lacks and then when you get it it's like oh my god this guy is incredible when maybe he's just really good and you've had players who couldn't do the thing that he does. Yeah, yeah. Erickson's been great, don't get me wrong. Every single... Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think we're getting very meta here, and it's going to sound like we're criticizing players we aren't really criticizing, but... No, no, no. But, okay, Erickson's been great. Almost every team at Champions League level has a player who is playing the role that Erickson's playing for United right now to a similar whether slightly lower or slightly higher level than Erickson has been playing it at. I, I don't think he's this exactly. one-of-a-kind totally midfielder that United have unearthed. And I think if United had spent the proper money and resources and purchased the midfielder who could do that, his signing would look a lot less great. I, I still think it's a good signing, but it wouldn't look as... It wouldn't be as positively perceived as it is now. I want to talk about... So, 
I guess the long story short of the McTominay Casemiro debate is I guess if Casemiro is fully fit, we both think he should start. And he did play 60 minutes for Brazil in their last match, but otherwise it's likely that we'll see McTominay. My other question is you've got Ericsson and Bruno. Do you think maybe one of them could be swapped out for a player like Fred who has that more defensive edge? Or do you think we'll just see Ericsson and Bruno? I think we're more likely to see Casemiro and McTominay than we are to see McTominay and Fred or Casemiro and Fred. But honestly, I know I think I think Ericsson and Bruno. I don't see Ericsson or Bruno really being dropped for any important fixtures all season. Bruno is probably our best player um, in terms of like the overall impact he can have on matches from a quality standpoint. I'm not talking about form. Talking about like players who can win you matches. It's Bruno. Ericsson is unique in in what he can bring in midfield. He gives us the opportunity to really create passing moves from deep. And I don't think either of those things are sacrificable. Those are fundamental. Yeah. And that I think Fred could be an option, but I think to Ten Hag style, Ericsson and Fernandez are going to be pretty much fundamental. All right. City. City's 11. The way I see it, they did not really replace Zinchenko. They kind of they signed a left back who will probably turn out really good in a few years. But right now, Walker and Cancelo are the staples. Ederson's a staple. Rodri's a staple. De Bruyne is obviously going to play. And we already talked about Holland a lot. For the other five options, they have a number of interesting players. Akanji just joined and he looked pretty good in his debut. I have a lot of thoughts on why all City center backs look good. Not criticizing Akanji, but just... In general, they have a variety of attacking options that have cost a variety of fees in the high ranges. They also have players like Foden. Outside those six, or including those six, are there any players in City's lineup that you particularly want to discuss, who you think are having interesting seasons, who you think could be interesting in this match? I think Gundogan is always um, an interesting player because he's used in such a variety of roles. He also... You know, he's sort of been used as this like late arriving box threat in previous seasons. I think he was City's leading goal scorer the year before last. And so his role has sort of changed with Holland coming in. Um, so I'm not sure if Gundogan will start this match, but if he does, I think that's a player I'd have my eye on. Not in this particular match, but it would make me happy to see Jack Grealish doing Jack Grealish things. I And he has been for the most part compared to, I think a lot of people have negative perceptions of Grealish at City because of the end product that has resulted and because his role is sort of restricted compared to the just like all encompassing attacking presence that he was at Villa. Um, But yeah, he's a player I'm a big fan of. And I was, I was quite sad that he went to city, but I would like to see him do well after this match on an individual level. Let's do a couple Q and a questions from last week. We didn't finish the list. Let's start with, we exchanged a few really good messages with a listener named Mark who basically had a long series of what I thought were really interesting thoughts on whether De Gea actually can't learn this new role of distributing the ball. And he cited a few really good examples of other sports where players have perhaps adopted completely different skill sets to the ones that they made their name with. And I guess I want to talk a little bit about maybe a less objective and more theoretical or... or speculative area of player development and how maybe some players tend to learn things later in their careers or at different stages of their careers that we cannot foresee or predict and whether you think maybe De Gea could be one of those players given a season of time 
to learn to play out the back. Because I'm sure it's something that they're working on. Like, I can't believe that United are just going to go long from goal kicks the entire season and, and just accept the trade-offs of that. After um, 45 minutes of football, <laughs> right? After getting scared exactly, off of it in exactly. that Brentford match. Exactly. Yeah, so I'm going to go to you first. How, I mean, do you think this is completely a dead end for De Gea? Do you think there's any chance? Basically, my answer to this question, which I'll, I'll, I'll pose it in no uncertain terms. Why is everyone so certain that De Gea can't learn to play out from the back? I'll tell you the reason I am confident that he cannot is, and the person who asked this question, their, their reference point was other, other athletes, like you said, Aaron, other athletes have learned new skills at advanced ages at a high level. Playing out from the back at a, at a basic level is basically playing possession football, which is not one skill, it's many skills. It's composure on the ball, it's decision making, it's the technical ability to strike a football properly under pressure versus not under pressure over different distances. It's press resistance. Goalkeeper Ederson, for example, is press resistant. I know that's like a weird thing to think about, but being able to like have a player come take you under pressure and to take the proper touch out of pressure, either if it's to clear the ball or to play a like a line breaking pass, that's multiple skills. And that that technical comfort and that decision making and composure is something you learn at a really young age playing football. And we see it with with other goalkeepers don't don't really get exposed to this a lot. They do more nowadays. But when De Gea was a kid coming up through an academy, um, I'm sure he played you know as an outfielder at times. But he would have probably had like a much larger emphasis placed on his shot stopping. And you can see this because he doesn't have the composure to he doesn't he doesn't look comfortable on the ball. You could teach him to kick a football better. You could teach him what passes to make. But that composure you learn as a child, and you can look at other footballers who are outfielders who switch positions and struggle with this. McTominay was a striker. He switched to midfield. He turns 26 this this year, I think. And I think at best, you could argue at 26 years old, after more than half a decade of playing as a midfielder, he's getting to a point where he has some level of composure in the middle of the park. He's an outfielder. He's been an outfielder his whole life. It's not one new skill. You're asking a player to completely rewire themselves. And so I think that, for me, is why it's so unlikely. People like to think of possession play as one skill. It's actually the essence of a footballer. Uh, It's everything you learn. Yeah, well, football is also a lot like real life, right? Where there's, there's transferability of certain skills. So I think another sort of... A comparison I'd make is maybe why I have so much faith that perhaps Dalo can learn to be a very effective player in the final third, when right now I don't necessarily think he's up there, is because he has technical bases in other roles, uh, the way he strikes the ball, the way he passes, the way he passes under pressure, his technique, his carrying, that I think can transfer well to those roles. Whereas I think De Gea right now, throughout his career, has played a role that is fundamentally completely different to the skills that he's going to have to learn and develop with. So I thought that the examples that kind of are raised with other athletes, they're good points, but I think there is a higher level of transferability of the skills that they already have to the ones that they need to have than what De Gea currently has. 
So while I thought it was a pretty good point, I don't I I think it's much harder to have that level of confidence in De Gea. The other point that I would bring up with respect to De Gea and playing out of the back at the highest level, this is not just playing out of the back. De Gea is at a club that is in a collection of maybe 20 clubs that each have about five or six players who are exclusively good at being press resistant, playing the ball from deep, being these elite deep passers. Like I say this about Erickson where Erickson comes in and has this impact because he's the only one with these skills at United and every other big club has one or two, right? That do this all the time. Every other big club has one or two is like, 30 players on planet earth who are doing the things that these players can do right it's not even just there are millions of professional footballers and 0.000001 percent of them are good enough to do these things so it's not just that De Gea needs to learn how to play out the back it's that he needs to become one of the best goalkeepers in europe at playing out of the back from having next to no experience playing out of the back like if you watch Ederson, he can't it's not just about him being able to pass the ball. Like he can pick out a player at the half line on the touch line. I think I I I totally agree with you. But I think if I were Mark and I was listening to this to your response, I would say, "Well, why does he have to be Ederson? Why can't he be insert mid-table goalkeeper in Germany who does this?" Well, mid-table goalkeepers in Germany are in the upper percentile as well like that was sort of exactly my point <laughs> it's my no my point is that like the level well germany's probably the outlier right where i don't think i would imagine the mid-table bundesliga goalkeeper is probably a better ball player than the mid-table premier league goalkeeper right now but absolutely if you were to look at the teams that play possession football and the goalkeepers they have right now in the premier league at a high level um most of them are exceptional like sanchez Ederson, Allison, Brentford don't really play possession football, but Raya. And and the keepers who are not absolutely exceptional get caught out frequently. Like, the example I would give there is Edouard Mendy, who's had a number of high-profile errors this season. I know there was a lot of debate that I didn't really engage in about a year ago about whether Edouard Mendy was good at playing out of the back because he played a lot of eye-catching passes and had a lot of interesting involvements in Chelsea moves. I think my... Not, not. I don't want to rehash that debate, but my short answer would be he was good at playing out of the back, but the difference between him and the top goalkeepers at doing it was enough that costed Chelsea a number of chances created and conceded over the course of a season. Under more pressure, he started to make mistakes that were more costly than goalkeepers like Ederson, Allison, Sanchez, Raya, who already make a fair share of mistakes, even being as good as they are. So... The level is so high and where we're starting at from is so far away from what we're looking to do that I just have a really hard time believing that De Gea at 32 is going to become, even if he becomes able to do it, it's still not going to be so good that you can't just get someone else who's better at it. And the other thing is, even if De Gea did it, his game is not free of other flaws. He is extremely unproactive in his style of goalkeeping. He is very reluctant to make sweeping actions. He's very reluctant to claim crosses. And those issues cause United chances in defensive transition, especially when playing a high line, and they cause United chances at set pieces, which has been 
notably probably the most talked about area of United's defense breaking down over the last few seasons is they've conceded way above average in the Premier League from set pieces when a team like City concedes about three set pieces in a league season. So you're basically having to teach De Gea two-thirds of the game of the modern goalkeeper and you're going to have to make him so good at it that you can't find a replacement who's feasibly better because if there's a replacement that's feasibly better, United's rivals are going to take that player and be better for it. So... Yeah, basically, you're just you're dealing with low probabilities. I did like that question, though, for what it's worth. Because I, I, I think it's easy for us to be dismissive when player development can be really weird. Like, you might find De Gea suddenly amazing at it, and we're completely dumbfounded. And yeah, I agree. It, it's not out of the question. It's happened before. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah, so in summary, A, it's more than one skill. It's not one skill uh, that he has to learn. And B... He doesn't just have to learn it. He has to get so good at it that he can't be upgraded on or can barely be upgraded on such that it's not worth the the opportunity cost to do so. Um, so so that's, a, that's a high threshold and you're dealing with low probabilities, like Aaron said. New question, this time from so-called Tomato Chutney. I'm going to guess that's not his real name. Where will we finish, Aaron? Uh, could we win the FA Cup or the Europa League? I think at the start of the season, I said sixth, and there's still enough reason to just say sixth again. Um, The teams I could have foreseen United passing at the start of the season were Arsenal and Chelsea. I think Arsenal have looked very solid, and I think Chelsea have sacked their manager and replaced him with a brilliant coach who's going to do, at least in the short term, a very good job, which I think makes it difficult. I think United have the most weaknesses of the top six in terms of squads, both in terms of depth and first 11, and... Yeah, I think it's going to be really difficult. I know that there are a couple of new coaches, like I said, Potter, but and and, and Conte is also relatively new at Spurs, but Conte's style is a lot. Spurs have already shown signs of being able to implement it and implementing it at the highest level, and Chelsea have an individual edge over United from a squad quality perspective. I think the one saving grace for United is that none of these teams are free of weaknesses, Except City, really. Arsenal haven't really proven themselves in the biggest games, and they are sub- they are susceptible to some injuries. Chelsea have a lot of risk associated with what they're doing, and I don't think they necessarily have the perfect template of players that they can just put into a team and produce at a really high level. I think there's going to be some work to do there. And in the long term, that's going to be determined by how much their front office is dedicated to building a long-term project instead of just trying to throw a team together and win something immediately because I think they need time and they need to give Potter time. Liverpool don't look as strong as in previous seasons. I think they're also susceptible to depth issues and maybe have lost a little bit of quality in their attack. Um, I think Case, I think you believe in Firmino a little bit more than me, but I think going from Mane to any of Jota, Firmino, or Darwin Nunes is like a pretty big downgrade. Um, And even Luis Diaz, even though I, I quite like Luis Diaz, uh, and I, I also like Jota for what it's worth. I just think Mane is one of the best players in the world. And then I think Spurs, they just, they 50-50 a lot of games and just like barely edge them. Their attackers are absolutely brilliant, but they don't always dominate games. I think sometimes, especially recently, they've gotten points on the board by just having attackers do crazy things. If you haven't seen Sun's hat trick against Leicester, go watch it. It's he comes on in like the 65th minute. He has three shots. The first shot is a right-footed long-range goal. The second shot is a left-footed long-range goal. And the third shot is between the keeper's legs from a close angle. 
He's one of the most ridiculous goal scorers. I think he's probably of... the best finisher we've we've seen in top play football during our lifetimes. I would go that far. Totally. And it's because he's two footed and also brilliant with both feet. Like he's I yeah. And when you have players like that, if you ga- if games are fifty fifty, you still win sixty percent because they're just going to finish more chances than the opposition. And that is so rare, by the way. A lot of people think that that is a common trait. It's not. And Sun and Kane are two of the few players who do it. None of these teams are free of weaknesses, and if the seasons play out badly for them and well for United, they could finish second, I guess. But odds are, on the balance of things, if you simulate the upcoming season a million times, uh, United probably finish sixth. Sixth place. I think sixth place, and I think we have a decent chance of winning the Europa League and a worse chance of winning the FA Cup. Just because there's really good teams in the FA Cup. There's better teams in the FA Cup than there are in the Europa League, which is crazy, but yeah, that's the reality of the situation. FA Cup's hard. FA Cup, yeah, there's more teams that are really, really good. And also, it's one leg instead of two legs, so you're more likely to get unlucky. Um, you're also more likely to get lucky, I suppose, but I think on on quality, the absence of luck favors United in the Europa League. Whereas in the FA Cup, it favors United. As it well. does favor United <laughs> against five teams, but yeah. So I would say Europa League should be in the knockout stages in the latter half of it, and it'll depend on luck. FA Cup, you just gotta put a good team out and hope. And Premier League, most likely sixth, but I would love to finish fourth. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see whether if if and when we miss Champions League again, whether the board invests big money again to avoid that financial loss three seasons running or whether this huge expenditure we saw this summer as has been indicated by Murtaugh was a one-off on that note I think we're gonna wrap it up today we'll have some good content for you next week hopefully because there's actual football happening hope you enjoyed this week's devils in the details you can follow us at devils itd pod on twitter or on a variety of streaming platforms. Our awesome theme music was made by Jacob Connor. You can find at Jacob J. Connor on Twitter. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.